Previously on the storyteller Violent Delights, shocking details emerged of how wealthy farmer Maxwell Garvey forced his wife to have an affair under his own roof. Meanwhile, he took a lover of his own, the sister of his wife's new partner. I was immediately attracted to him. And the mother of murder-accused Sheila Garvey revealed her son-in-law told her in graphic detail about their sex games and gambling for her daughter's body. He said he tossed a coin with Brian Tevendale to see who would sleep with my daughter first. It was horrible. I'm Isla Traquair and this is the storyteller Violent Delights, a true story of love which began as a fairy tale but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale, and I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and who killed Maxwell Garvey and why. November 1968, the High Court in Aberdeen was drawing bigger and bigger crowds every day to queue outside long before sunrise with flasks of tea and sandwiches. And every day, more would be turned away once all the seats were taken. However, a rabble would remain outside behind the crush barriers. They were particularly interested in seeing Trudy Burse walking into court hand in hand with her husband Fred, who was yet to give evidence. Like Sheila, she'd gained almost celebrity status from her candid evidence, which stretched over two days. But still, the main focus was on the blonde, immaculate, and now emaciated Sheila Garvey. Recently graduated police constable, Evis Ritchie, who took Sheila to and from prison and guarded her throughout parts of the trial, couldn't help but observe the woman she sat beside in court. She was very solemn, and she didn't actually show much emotion at all when we were sitting beside her. She just, she really didn't. She just sat quite solemnly and listened. Sheila later said, described her experience in court. She said it, she was like a one woman audience to a macabre pantomime. So in a way, I guess that does describe the fact that she was, she was sitting there observing, but almost not fully aware that this was her life that was um, going to be decided upon. I just, I, I really, it's, it's difficult to imagine. I'm sure she was thinking about her family and what she'd already witnessed in the trial, her mother, um, what was going to happen to her. I mean, that seems to me to, that, I think that would have been prevalent in my mind, um, what was going to happen to me. Uh, where was I going to be in the next few years? I'm sure there were a multitude of things going through her mind, but she certainly didn't show that emotion. And considering that there was hundreds and hundreds of people... Yes, that was another part of it, because there were, it was such a sensational crime, and so many people wanted to be there, they wanted to get into court, they wanted to see this lady, maybe get a picture of this lady, find out as much about it as possible, find out as much about the case as possible, all the sordid details. Um, 
just the whole the whole case everything around it the sensation of the court i remember that that was a big part of it because i just found the i'll never forget lionel dykes he was just he was so dramatic mr dowdles he was a he was a sheila garvey's solicitor and he was a quieter more serene sort of man but um, it was just everything around the case fascinated me fascinated me and just fueled me with enthusiasm. <laughs> I'd chosen the right career. And here you were with a front row seat next to the main person. Yes, exactly. On the second day of Trudy Burst giving evidence, the journalists and people on the public benches were on the edge of their seats as more details emerged. It began with Max's spiralling behaviour. Did you ever notice any peculiarities in his behaviour? when you were out with him, particularly in a motor car. Yes, this was when he began to change. At the beginning of our friendship, he seemed quite normal, as only a happy person would be. He began drinking a very great deal and always ordered doubles. It wasn't one or two, and he didn't just stick to whiskey. He opened the door of the car while it was moving and used to lean out so his fingers touched the road and he burnt his hand. Sheila turned round and told him to stop being so childish. On another occasion, he insisted that they sit in each corner of his Mark 10 Jaguar car beside each window so that there was no physical contact between the four of them. Did you understand his attitude behind all this? He seemed to resent the fact that Sheila did have emotional feelings towards Brian. Can you see what kind of effect all this was having on Sheila herself? Sheila didn't like Max to be near her. She was involved with Brian and as far as I know, she had very deep feelings for him. But Sheila wasn't the only one who had deep feelings for Brian. Did he ever tell you what his attitude was towards Brian, who was quite obviously his wife's lover at that time? He was very, very friendly with Brian, and he told me that he actually loved Brian more than he loved his wife Sheila. Did you extract anything out of that? I found it quite strange that he would say such a thing. Her brother corroborated this in his statement, which he'd given to police months earlier, which was read out in court. On three successive Saturdays, we went to Edinburgh and Glasgow, and Edinburgh again, spending the weekend in various hotels. On one particular night, when I was out with Max himself, he started making strange advances. At the time, I was driving his car, and I pulled up at the side of the road, and I told him that if he didn't stop, I was going to belt him. He laughed it off as if it was a joke. When we reached Cairnbeg, we had a few drinks again in the house, and I went upstairs to bed. Shortly after I was in bed, he came in, and he sat on the edge of my bed, and he was wearing a red-coloured dressing gown, and it was open, and he was naked underneath. I told him if he didn't leave the room, I was going to get up, get dressed, and walk home, and he laughed again, and he left the room. One Saturday night, Sheila, Max and myself had been drinking in Lawrence Kirk. When we returned home, he suggested it would be a good idea to do a toss-up to see who slept with who that night. Sheila objected, and he told her to shut up. He tossed a coin, and I won. He went through to sleep in the room that I normally had. At six in the morning, I woke up, and I found that he was also lying in bed with Sheila and me. He once told me, that he loved me more than he loved Sheila. He often offered me pills of various shapes and sizes, 
which he usually took himself when he was drinking in the house. Max had begun pushing the boundaries further and further in every part of his life, including flying. The police had previously scolded him with a warning, but even for them, he'd gone too far, as Sheila recalled. Suddenly, Max's plane appeared and he swooped so low over the boats that people on board were terrified and I believe some of them ended up in the water. Max cleared the cliff top on the other side of the harbour with only feet to spare. I was frightened and embarrassed, got the children together into the car and drove straight home. Max had been cautioned several times before about his flying stunts, but this time he was charged with dangerous flying. Again, it was a huge joke, and he said, laughing, that he would pay a QC to get him off. He loved the feeling of power and being able to frighten people. I was afraid that he would kill either himself or someone else. I tried to reason with him, but it was like talking to a brick wall. There were claims that Trudy had had sex with Max while he was flying. Alistair Smith said the evidence in court and other rumours had earned him a reputation as a man out of control. A playboy aspect of Maxwell Garvey, he, I don't know that this was the case for many years before the actual murder, but certainly latterly he became associated with Daredevil flying over motor cars on the highway, uh, giving people uh, trips on the aircraft, uh, including his uh, paramour, Trudy Burse. Uh, I think that people had been disappointed in some of the things that he's, his name, albeit maybe not uh, borne out by evidence, had been associated, I would have thought that uh, some of the, the rumours that were going around in the Mearns and in Aberdeen would have tended to say, this is a ploughboy who's a bit, a bit weird in his behaviour, and so they were interested from that point of view. On one of those flights, Brian told police that Max threatened violence towards Sheila and it was shortly after that that he and Sheila took her children to a hotel in Stonehaven. I once flew with him from Fordoon Flying Field to Bervie, shooting up vehicles on the way. We were both severely intoxicated. When he landed, he told me he was going to try a new variation in backdoor sex with Sheila, and if she didn't like it, he was going to break her neck. Matters finally got to a head, and Sheila walked out on him. He came down to the mill inn in Stonehaven, and he threatened her. He said he was going to shoot her and the kids and me if she didn't go back. In the witness stand, Sheila also spoke of her attempt to leave her husband. He told me that if I choose Brian, he would put a bullet through my eyes. He went storming out of the hotel and locked the car I'd come down in and went over to his car. She did not go back, but she went to stay in the Bay Hotel 
and then he forcibly removed her at three o'clock the following morning. She went to the family doctor to complain about Max's strange sexual ideas, and the doctor immediately phoned Max. When she got home, he twisted her arm so far up her back that she had to get the doctor, who was told by Max that she fell. I wanted to be divorced from a husband. I was terribly distressed. I was still taking tranquilizers. Her doctor, the local minister, and even the hotel manager were enlisted to urge Sheila to return to Max. She consulted a divorce lawyer the next day, but was given little hope. Her options, stay with Max or lose her children and home. She believed the lack of support from those she turned to was largely down to Max's powerful position in society. I was accepted by the exclusive elite because Max's family had farmed at West Cairnbeg for generations, sowing the seeds of social discrimination, and they had money. Snobbery was rife. Although a high proportion of this farming community seemed pretty uneducated, big farms and big money gave them a high status in the community. In November 1967, Sheila's family also intervened. A curious meeting was held at her parents' house with the foursome present. Although Edith Watson was aware of the couplings, her husband only knew something was very wrong. In private, Sheila confided in her father, who promised he would talk to Max. The meeting ended with the siblings being dismissed, much to the dismay of Trudy, as she explained to Lionel Dykey's QC during cross-examination. Do you remember the meeting in the house of Mr and Mrs Watson when the foursome were liquidated? Yes. And you were rather upset because you were rather abruptly dismissed. I thought we hadn't been given the chance to take part in the discussion. Did it not occur to you that the primary interest of Mr and Mrs Watson was not so much to give you an opportunity of stating your point of view but to preserve the marriage between their daughter and Maxwell Garvey. Why were we invited to attend then? I was annoyed that Max hadn't had the courage to come out and face me and tell me by himself. You had lost one lover, Mrs Burse. Yes. One who had no emotional feelings towards you, and at that time you had considerable emotional feelings. Yes. And who was a generous lover. What do you mean by that? He arranged parties in Edinburgh, the Minto County Hotel. He was a generous lover, wasn't he, insofar as hospitality was concerned? Oh, yes, his hospitality. It was him who paid for everything. And you were still anxious that the relationship between you and Max should continue despite the decision taken at the meeting? Truly, I myself would have wished it to continue. Naturally, I felt upset because more or less he was saying I just suited him sexually. Sheila and Max agreed to work things out in their marriage and not see Brian or Trudy. But Max couldn't stay away, and by Christmas he was back holding court in the bars of Stonehaven in the presence of Brian. Not satisfied with him just as a drinking buddy, he took it a step further and once again pushed the pair together. I received a call from Sheila at about 6.30 in the evening. She came into the house and she said Max had sent her down to borrow a record of mine. She'd been told not to come back to Cairnbeg until the back in nine. 
The following day, I again received a call at about 3.45 in the afternoon and Max had sent her down again to spend the rest of the afternoon with me and not to go back to Cairnbeg until about 8pm. Then there was a more public reunion in February at a party where Max made his wife and her lover dance cheek to cheek, taking what she described as malicious delight in the reaction of onlookers. The following day, she asked Brian to help her run away and Trudy drove the pair to Bradford in England without the children. But despite having a friend to stay with and both securing jobs within a day, Sheila phoned Max and without telling Brian, she left for Heathrow Airport in London to meet her husband to fly home. Their happy reunion was short-lived once they got home to West Cairnbeg. He went through to the sitting room and brought through a large glass and threw it at the radiator. He smashed the glass and took up a bit of it and held it to my face. He pulled me off the chair by my hair and took hold of my left arm and forced it right up my back. All this time he wanted me to call Brian a name which I refused to do. I was screaming. I thought my, my shoulder was slowly being broken. He threw me against the wall. Eventually I, I got upstairs and the next thing I remember is Dr Lyle coming in and suggesting I go to the Ross Clinic. Max had told his mother-in-law that her daughter had taken an overdose, but when Edith arrived at the house, she said Sheila was rational and told her about the assault. Did you ever see your daughter? suffering physically in any way. Yes, Maxwell and the children came down to the house one morning and he told me that my daughter had tried to take an overdose of pills and in trying to stop her, he had cut her. A vein had been cut. She told me that my son-in-law had told her to call Brian Tevendale, a bastard which she would not do. He forced her down on her knees to say it. She would not do it. Then he broke a glass and held it in front of her face to disfigure her. She tried to get away and phoned for the police. To stop her doing that, he took her arm and twisted it right up the back to her neck and threw her with all the force he could against the wall. Was this completely out of character with the Maxwell Garvey you knew? Oh, yes. Absolutely. This was Mr Hyde and not the Dr Jekyll who had done that to your daughter. Yes, that's true. Brian told police that he was also on the receiving end of Max's wrath not long after the assault on Sheila. Shortly after this incident, I was walking down to the Marine Hotel from my house and I was set on in an alley and I received a slash to the face accompanied by the words, that's a present from the skipper. I had only called Max Skipper when we were flying, so I assumed it was from him. I approached him the next time I saw him, and he said, you wouldn't get a chance to run the next time. Despite this threat, it seemed Max found it hard to stay away from the pubs and Brian. The last time I saw Max was in the Crown Hotel one Sunday night. That claim from his police statement read out in court was in reference to the last time he saw Maxwell alive. As mentioned in a previous episode, Brian did not give evidence in court. The burden of proof lay with the Crown. 
So this was his only official account, an account which varied greatly from Sheila and Alan Peters' statements. After their arrests on August the 16th, Sheila and Brian were interrogated at the same time and both denied knowledge of what had happened to Max. Unusually, they'd been allowed a private discussion upon Brian's request. The court heard the police had allowed it. Midnight came and I was told suddenly that Brian Tevendale, who had been arrested about six o'clock that evening, wanted to see me. I was taken downstairs into the room in which they had been questioning him. I was bewildered. I couldn't understand why they were allowing us to talk together. I was even more surprised when all the detectives left the room and left us alone to talk without police supervision. Later, I learned the reason. The room had been bugged. It turned out, however, that the equipment hadn't worked properly. Hours later, Brian requested a second meeting with Sheila, which was again allowed to occur in private. We'll hear more about that in another episode. But unknown to Sheila, as soon as the detectives returned to the interview room, Brian said he would take them to the body. He added that he didn't shoot him, but would explain later. This is his version of what happened on May the 14th, 1968. I received a call from Sheila to go down to Cairn Beg. When I arrived there, I found her in a terrible state. She said she had come in and was pouring herself a drink and then she went to bed. She said that a while later, Max had come up the stairs carrying a rifle and told her that if she did not agree to do a certain act, he was going to shoot her. He had stripped and got onto the bed there and there had been a grab for the gun and a struggle and he got shot. This is where I come in now. I rolled him up in a sheet and a bit of canvas and I trailed him downstairs and put him in his car and I drove it away. I've missed out a bit about cleaning up. I got a cloth with water and with Sheila we cleaned up the mess. I drove the car to a point near Lauriston Castle and I removed the body from the back seat and I pulled it through the grass. I used to stay in this area and I remembered an old tunnel I used to play in. I left the body in this tunnel and I covered it with rocks. I drove the car to the airfield and I locked it and I hitchhiked back to Aberdeen. I threw the keys of his car into the mouth of the River Dee and that's it. Shortly after giving his statement, Sheila and Brian appeared in court charged with murder. Sheila did not know what he had told police, only that the body of her husband had been found. She was fingerprinted and photographed when they returned to police headquarters. And it was at this point Sheila requested to see an inspector and she would finally tell her side of the story. On Tuesday the 14th of May, my husband arrived home just after 11 and we had a drink and watch television. We went to bed about 11.30pm. Max had two sonorals. I fell asleep and I expect he must have been sleeping too. I wakened with someone standing and whispering to me to get up. 
The bedroom light was off, but the room was lit from the light on the landing. I recognised the figure and the voice as being that of Brian Tevendale. He took me by the arm out to the landing and standing there was a fair-haired man. I didn't know who he was at all. I was hustled through to the bathroom and told to get in and stay there. I noticed he was carrying a gun. I didn't know at that time that it belonged to Max. I heard our bedroom door closing and terrible thumping noises. About five minutes later, Brian came through and tried the handle, but I had it locked. I opened the door. He said something like, you won't have any more of him to put up with and asked me to stay beside the girl's door in case they came out. The two of them were a while in the bedroom and they were pulling Max out in a ground sheet type of thing. I can't remember whether they took sheets with them or not because I was terribly upset in a hell of a state. But I do remember they weren't long in going away. The following, no, oh, no, wait a minute. Uh, I was going to explain. I heard one car leaving, but they, they had already told me that Alan had parked his car in the side of the road. This was the first mention of Alan Peters, who at this point had yet to be arrested. Brian had not mentioned him in his statement and deliberately told police he travelled alone, which we will hear later was not true. Sheila's confession led to Alan's arrest, but it was Alan's statement he willingly gave police the next day when they tracked him down in Fort Augustus that pointed the finger at Sheila. In the next episode of the storyteller Violent Delights, Alan Peters' involvement becomes clearer, but how did he become entangled in the spiderweb of the Garveys? And you fed this warm, dead body down a hole like a worm. Yes. And the most shocking piece of evidence is shown to the jury. It was an innocent-looking cardboard box, but inside it, was the yellowing skull of my dead husband. This is the storyteller Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please head to iTunes to rate and review. It makes a big difference and lets others hear about this story. A huge thanks to Nick J. Tyler, who wrote and performed all the tracks except for the title piece, which is Searchlight by Cathedral. And thank you also to all the voice actors, in particular Kate Dickey, for their support and time. <laughs>